0: What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golver with the Washington Post, and I am joined on the other line by Michael Pina of SB Nation. Michael, it's one of those days where it feels like the world is just slightly, a little bit on fire, and maybe it's going to be consuming us here before we can even, uh, you know, get our bearings. But you know, I think this whole coronavirus issue that I've kind of You know, hintingly joked at maybe over the last couple of weeks is really coming to a head here over the last couple of days, and things are about to get very, very serious. We're going to dive into that topic here in a little bit, but there was, you know, some pretty big news I thought on the court uh, over the weekend. And of course, I'm, uh, you know, referring to the future world champion, Los Angeles Lakers, who over (laughs) a 72 hour period, beat uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Milwaukee Bucks on Friday night at Staples Center, and then took care of business against Kawhi Leonard and the Los Angeles Clippers on Sunday at Staples Center. And Michael, I was at the game on Friday night, very impressive performance. Uh, I think you could say ditto for the uh, Lakers Clippers game, which I watched on television. Unfortunately, I was out of town working on a story. So I missed that one in person. Um, but the takes were absolutely overflowing on Twitter, after that game. I saw people rushing to call LeBron James better than Michael Jordan. I saw people rushing to say that (laughs) LeBron James is the best player in the world right now. I saw people rushing, as I hinted earlier, to say the Lakers are the new favorites to win the title. Um, All of it was a lot. So I'm going to just throw this one to you, kind of open-ended question. Were you as moved as many people on Twitter were by what you saw over the weekend from LeBron and the Lakers?
1: I think it takes a lot to move me during the regular season. Now LeBron and the Lakers, I you know I did not necessarily expect them to to sweep here. I mean, both performances were super impressive. Um, LeBron in particular was just like apex and vintage in a lot of different ways. I mean, this is a guy who. Uh, was averaging. I wrote a story about LeBron. I know we're gonna talk in depth about him in a minute, but I wrote a story about him in late January, um, basically about how he wasn't shooting free throws. Like he wasn't getting to the line as often as he was as he had throughout his career, and it was down to about five attempts per game. So. Uh, Since I wrote that story, there's been 16 games, and he's averaging about seven per game since. And over the weekend, he attempted 15 free throws against the Bucs and 14 against the Clippers, and those were his two highest totals of the season. So clearly, LeBron wanted these games. He played like a man possessed. He was as physical as we've seen him. He was as skilled as we've seen him. Uh, He had everything in the bag. He was defending Kawhi. He was defending Giannis uh, just a vintage performance from him. Now, I, I, those are two regular season wins. And I think the Lakers, I mean, I already had a lot of respect for him and a lot of respect for the Lakers before them. They could have lost both those games. And I still would have thought that if they won the title, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, so I don't really have too much meaningful to take away. Uh, but I do respect people who think that LeBron is still the best player in the world.
0: Yeah. So a couple of thoughts. I mean, that was playoff LeBron, right? When we talk about playoff LeBron, the guy who puts his head down, gets to the basket, gets to the free throw line and isn't settling for the three-pointers mm-hmm. quite as much as he was earlier this season. That's what we got. And it actually kind of reminded me, you know, in both those games, just the position that a team would be in when they're down in a series, right? Like you have that desperation and that hunger. And for the Lakers being down 0-2 to the Clippers earlier in the season and having to hear all that chatter about it, uh, and then against the Bucks, you're down 0-1. Giannis does the whole thing where he crowns himself in Milwaukee, um, and clearly the Lakers did not like that based on how they kept crowning LeBron repeatedly over the weekend, as if to shove that right back in Giannis's face. Um, it reminded me of just a team that was responding to adversity as if they were in a playoff series, right? It's like, all right, well now we have to take care of home court uh, against Milwaukee and you know try to send this thing back, uh, you know, even. Like, that was sort of the mentality or the feel to it. I thought those games meant a lot more to the Lakers Mm -hmm. than they did to either the Bucks or the Clippers. I don't mean to diminish those victories or the importance of those wins, but I think it's a, a fair and realistic thing to say. Now, of course, Giannis, every game means a lot to Giannis. The guy goes so freaking hard. I'm not sure how he came away with only a knee sprain on that one play, but every time he comes to LA, I just marvel At how hard he's going during pregame warmups, just grunting his way through, you know, like a 15 minute exercise routine. Um, So, you know, I'm not trying to say, oh, you know, Milwaukee mailed it in. That wasn't the case. Now, certain guys on their roster who, you know, tend to not show up in the playoffs did not show up uh, in any way. And I I think that, uh, I mean, like Bledsoe with the fourth and fifth fouls back to back in the third quarter was just killing me and making me rip my hair out You know, it's a good thing I buzz it, Michael, because there wouldn't have been much left uh, after that performance. Um, But I I do think that that's important context, right? Like, you know, I'm not going to dismiss the March wins. They were both impressive against really high level opponents Uh, against the Clippers. I mean, Paul George was, you know, shooting the lights out, playing great basketball. Um, You know, they were intense. Beverly was doing his typical, you know, Beverly routine. So for the Lakers to be able to put both those teams away, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, it was worthy of celebration. At the same time, this is why I have the mantra about don't judge players on their best day or worst day. And same thing with teams. I mean, those were the two signature wins of the entire Lakers season. So the truth about who they are as an organization probably isn't going to be quite as rosy as it seems, you know, during those two particular games. Nevertheless, we have an email from Kevin who writes, hey, Ben, remember how you firmly believed all season that Giannis was the best player in the league? And Michael firmly believed all season that Kawhi was the best player in the league. And then, within a span of 48 hours, you both found out that you were wrong? That was fun. <laughs> okay, Kevin, with your dripping sarcasm. Michael, uh, I'll allow you to reply to this one first. Uh, does Kevin have a point here? Did LeBron make us look like goofballs?
1: Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, LeBron, That I think that, that was the best. He's played some tremendous basketball this season. It's been arguably, in a lot of ways, just if you contextually factor in his age and kind of the pieces around him that aren't Anthony Davis, this is one of the most impressive seasons of his career. Like, people that age with that many miles on them are not supposed to do what he's doing on both ends of the floor. Uh, That said, like, when I was watching, particularly the Clippers-Laker game on Sunday, my takeaway throughout it was that no one on the Lakers can guard Kawhi Leonard. (laughs) So, Like, long-term in a seven-game series, that's kind of the bigger, big-picture takeaway that I had. Like, they had LeBron on him to start. Kawhi was basically having his way. They've had to put Anthony Davis on him late. LeBron—I mean, sorry, excuse me. Kawhi was having his way on Anthony Davis, Uh, you know— it wasn't the best performance by kwai He finished with zero assists, which is kind of a little bit of a fluke. And on the other end, Avery Bradley hit a bunch of threes, which is why I don't like to put too many eggs in one regular season game and make these, you know, uh, big proclamations and takeaways. But I thought that, you know, LeBron reached a level that I wasn't even sure he was still able to to get to like there were certain possessions where in the Bucks game you know he's ISOed on Giannis and he drives right after AD cuts in from the top of the key and he finishes and one strong with his shoulder in Giannis's chest like that's a type of play we just I I I mean you know like in even just watching like the all-star game going back then like the physical difference between those two was pretty apparent but LeBron was very vintage in that way and then Against the the Clippers, like there were sequences where LeBron was just going at Kawhi Leonard, straight up either in the post with his back to him or faced up, uh, very physical. There was an and one finish through Kawhi that I don't think anybody alive can do except for LeBron. And of course, Kawhi responds to that by you know reverse pivot, spinning away from LeBron at the right elbow, and then dunking all over Kyle Kuzma. So like, I thought that Kawhi was pretty spectacular in his own right. Uh, still got to whatever he wanted with LeBron guarding him or with AD guarding him or with Marquise Morris guarding him or whoever he wanted to put on. It didn't matter. Uh, so that's basically what I saw watching the game. And I just well, really, le- really, really can't wait to see them face off in a playoff series.
0: Yeah, let me hop in because I think we should give a lot of credit here to Kyle Kuzma's trainer, who you'll remember after Christmas said that <laughs> LeBron was dodging the smoke, right? That he didn't want it with Kawhi Leonard, that Kawhi would guard him, but he wouldn't guard Kawhi. And what we saw over the weekend were you know a lot of uh, extended sequences where LeBron was matched up defensively head to head against those big time players and i'm kind of with you on your analysis like if it's not LeBron on Giannis and if it's not LeBron on Kawhi i'm not sure they have great defensive answers right so i just think that adds a layer of complexity and fun like how often is LeBron going to have to carry that type of load the two way load in those hypothetical uh, you know, playoff matchups? And then is he able to have the same level of success as he did against Giannis? Or is Giannis gonna find some ways to adjust? I thought in that Friday game, uh, LeBron played a very disciplined, high IQ game on both sides. It's so easy to, you know, we're we're just so accustomed to LeBron's intelligence and orchestration when he has the ball in his hands, because of the laser-like passes, because of just, you know, he knows when to attack and assert himself, when to get his teammates involved. We've all been conditioned to like the high IQ LeBron, uh, you know, offensively, uh, but defensively, like we usually associate LeBron's defense with the the block, right? The highlight-level mm-hmm. plays, the the chase downs, and those kinds of things. And I thought it was just like a very savvy old man game from him on the defensive end where he's like staying disciplined, sticking to the game plan, uh, you know, keeping his body in between Giannis and the basket, not getting bowled over, uh, you know, not getting, you know, just brutalized like a lot of defenders do. And then just doing a nice job of steering him to help or steering him away from the paint uh, and then forcing Giannis to shoot jumpers. I mean, it was like kind of textbook classic you know, defense uh, that you would want to use against a a non-shooter like Giannis, Um, but it worked, you know, and I think a lot of guys struggle to have that level of success, um, you know, against Giannis in that situation. So that's why I thought, you know, Friday was sort of their signature victory of the season up to that point, Uh, not only because it came against such a highly regarded opponent, but because it showed LeBron, you know, doing it on both ends. I'm curious, Michael, are you ready to take the next leap here, though, and say that LeBron has made this an MVP race? Um, You know, I think that most people even before this weekend had him in that number two spot. Would you have LeBron in that number two spot? And did he do enough here over the weekend for you to want
1: to get uh, a little frisky and say that maybe he should be the favorite? Uh, I wouldn't say that LeBron is the favorite, but I have absolutely no problem with anyone who is putting him at number two. I think there's a couple candidates that you could throw in the conversation, but it's really kind of a two player race. And I think a lot of people would poo poo even calling it a race, and it would just be kind of Giannis's to walk away with. But there's still a lot of basketball to be played, uh, knock on wood. And the fact that Giannis has this knee thing that, you know, we'll see how cautious the Bucks are going forward with it. But if LeBron kind of carries the narrative, because that's really what the MVP award is entirely. It's all narrative. It's all precedent. So if LeBron is the best player on this, the, you know, this juggernaut in the Western Conference again and he has that narrative at his back, then I could totally see people wanting to vote for him and give him, I, I think this would be his fifth MVP award instead of giving it back to back to Giannis. Um, I could see that happening. Uh, you know, if I had a vote, I would I would probably, you know, it would go down to the wire for me, to be honest. Like, I, I have so much respect for LeBron and what he's doing. Basically, like, Uh, on a team where the system is just LeBron and talent and him and Anthony Davis and high pick and roll. And like, there's really no third ball handler or second ball handler on the team who's uh, respectable at this point. Whereas, you know, Giannis, not to take anything away from him, but he's in this perfect system with one of the best coaches in the league. Uh, They have a lot of continuity. Everybody knows where they're supposed to be on both ends. And it's just kind of a different circumstance. So... It'd be diff- It'd be really interesting to kind of match them up. I mean, right now, if you just look at their on-off numbers, like LeBron is slightly better than Giannis. And I think that when you're talking about most valuable player, you have to really stress the word valuable. So it's really close to me, to be honest. I mean, I still expect Giannis to win, but it's a close race.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know you didn't just call Giannis a system player, Michael, because that system without Giannis just lost to the Phoenix Suns. And you know how I feel about the Phoenix Suns. So... um you know, I think that, that oversimplifying what he's done this season just a little bit, I think that their systems work because he's spectacular both ends, right? And everything is built around him. And if you take him out, and they've built it brilliantly around him, but like the whole house of cards uh, crumbles uh, if Giannis isn't out there doing what he needs to do. Now, uh, one nitpick on your case for LeBron, which I thought was strong and I agree with most, most points, uh, you don't hold Anthony Davis's presence against him at all. I, I think that we tend to talk about the Lakers roster as okay, it's spare parts and LeBron has this huge burden and he's obviously their main playmaker and like a lot of their other guards are kind of, you know, cringe inducing when you watch them try to, you know, dribble or make plays or or even, you know, make entry passes or anything else. But Anthony Davis is still Anthony Davis, right? He's like probably mm-hmm. a top six or seven M V P candidate himself this season. For years you hear guys like, you know, Kevin Durant and Steph Curry they're splitting votes right like we, we heard this constantly um and I think even LeBron probably missed out on some MVPs because of Kyrie Irving's presence um at times or at least consideration for MVPs because and people- and
1: Dwayne Wade also absolutely great
0: point so why are we why are we pretending Anthony Davis doesn't exist why are you pretending <laughs> Anthony Davis doesn't exist Michael uh
1: because he sucks now um AD's great. Uh, he's probably going to win defensive player of the year. It's well deserved. I think like I, when I'm just trying to make, if I'm trying to make an argument here, it's just like the on offs. And so when LeBron is on the floor without Anthony Davis, the team is plus 10, has a plus 10 net rating. They're still incredible. They're as good as they are with when, when both are on the floor, which is plus 10.4. When it's just Anthony Davis, but no LeBron, it, they're minus 2.5. And this is a trend that has been consistent throughout the entire season. And honestly, there was a stretch during that Clippers game on Sunday where... Uh, Kawhi, Paul George, and Marcus Morris. And I don't know why I just threw Marcus Morris in there, but he was on the floor. And it was versus a uh, a Lakers lineup that had AD and no LeBron. And the Lakers were just running Rondo AD pick and rolls and just slaughtering the Clippers. And that was kind of the first time where I've seen that happen, where the the Lakers are just able to kind of extend a lead so dramatically against top-level competition. So, I mean, that one game doesn't really measure up to a season's worth of numbers and impact. So that's the number one thing I would use if I'm kind of uh, making the case for LeBron and and completely ignoring Anthony Davis, who is a complete fraud. <laughs> well, look, here's where I stand.
0: Giannis would still be my MVP as of today. Um, I think... If he had not been injured, I would still feel like 90 to 95 percent confident that that's where I would be in April. Um, the injury, though, that's an open question because not only is it a matter of okay, well, he's supposed to miss the next couple of uh, games at least, and then we'll see how they handle it, but it also totally changes like the balance of their season, right? Like you and I were sitting here not too long ago saying, "Hey, they should chase 70. Let's see if they can do it." You know, it, it would be an amazing feather in the cap for Giannis. And this is what you see, why no teams ever win 70 games, right? Because one fluky, weird fall uh, in a, you know, late in a game where you're, you're bent over at a strange angle. If that costs you two weeks, there goes your 70 wins. Right. And so, uh, you know, to me, I think that if I was the Bucks, I would kind of shift into like ultra conservation mode. You're going to probably, you know, quote unquote, protect Giannis from himself. And like, ramp down his minutes even more, you know, ease him back in a lineup and everything else, um, just out of an abundance of caution because look, you're you're not getting to the finals, you're not getting accomplishing your organizational goals without him being at hundred percent health. And I think naturally that really opens the door for LeBron. Uh if Giannis is not producing on the same level that he has basically all season long, his uh Case is not nearly as strong, and if the Bucks aren't winning at the same clip that they have all season long, his case weakens too. So, um, now don't misinterpret me. I'm not saying, oh, LeBron head-to-head win over Giannis that reopened the MVP race. Like, I'm not that guy. I'm just saying, like, look, like, health, durability, and availability are key ingredients when it comes to this MVP race. And if Giannis is missing significant time, or if he's uh, limited. As a voter, uh, I would have to take that into account. But as of right now, Giannis is still my guy.
1: So real quick, like this is kind of a separate conversation, but I'm just going to throw it in here as an aside. But I I increasingly think that the MVP is, I don't want to call it irrelevant, because it's obviously not, we obsess over it, and it's a huge deal. In Michael, 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 we just talked about <laughs> it for fifteen minutes. If this seems irrelevant, like why are we wasting our time? Bro? No, 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 it's 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 relevant for sure. But I think that it's lessening in kind of what it tells us about who the best, the absolute best player in the league is. I mean, it's increasingly. I mean, it's always been a regular season award, of course, but the gap between what matters and works in the playoffs versus the regular season, I feel like that's widening every year. And the postseason is where reputations are actually forged. And, you know, I think Kawhi Leonard is the best player alive. And Kawhi Leonard isn't even a serious... has He's been basically healthy this entire year. And he has is not a serious candidate for MVP despite, you know, fabulous on-offs. His team is uh, expected, uh, projected by a lot of different... Uh, projecting services that to to win the championship, like uh, I, I just think that if you ask a question like, would you take Giannis over LeBron if your life was on the line? That those types of questions kind of mean more to me, even though that was a really morbid uh, phrasing. But the MVP just doesn't it doesn't inform us like it it used to. Maybe maybe I'm completely off base about this. Do you kind of get what I'm where I'm going with it, and kind of? why it is less in less, less telling, maybe maybe telling is the right word. Do you get yeah. what I'm, where I'm yeah. saying?
0: I do. I mean, well, so like Kevin came out with his question. He was like, Ben, you firmly believed all season Giannis was the best player in the league. I mean, I think the phrasing I've actually used is like my favorite to win most valuable player. And to me, those are two distinct things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, you're more talking about like what the number one spot on the top 100 would be or like who's sitting on the throne right now in terms of players. And I think you're totally fine to value those things more than whoever's going to win the MVP award. I do think that it still matters a lot from the historical standpoint. But I think mm-hmm. what really frustrates you, though, and you mentioned that the idea of narrative in, in the media's role in all of this, the MVP has kind of become like the meta valuable player award, right? Where it's like we're all <laughs> so like navel gazely about it, and like we we like do the horse race of the horse race about the MVP race that, um, it gets exhausting. It definitely gets overdone. And I think sometimes the group thing just becomes so severe that, uh, you know, it can lead to, you know, inaccurate selections at times. So I don't know. I still think it matters. I'm not going to shun the MVP race. I do think LeBron, his recent play and Giannis's injury, unfortunately have made this thing interesting kind of for the first time all year. So I guess I kind of welcome that debate and, and welcome that, uh, conversation. Uh, but at the same time, like I I said earlier, I think Giannis is still my guy. Real quick, I want your 22nd take. Are the Lakers now the favorites to win the title? Ooh.
1: uh, No, they are not. Uh, I still think, for reasons that I have already outlined, that the Clippers are better. And then, of course, we have... Uh, the dark horse contenders down in Houston who have lost their last three games to lottery teams by a combined 7,000 points. So they have everybody in the league at the top right where they want them. So watch out for those Rockets. See, Michael, here I was
0: trying not to mention the Rockets all all <laughs> podcast just to let you off the hook a little bit because I'm sure it's been a rough couple of days, but here it was getting are. awkward. <laughs> yeah, walking right into it. Uh, we'll get to the Rockets maybe a little bit later. Um, I do think that we need to to really dig in on this idea of the coronavirus, though, in kind of a serious manner, because mm-hmm. uh, LeBron made a comment on Friday that basically, "Hey, look, if the NBA is going to be playing in empty gyms, he wasn't going to play." And I think his heart was really in the right place with that comment. He seemed a little bit surprised by the question or like the idea. I'm sure, like any NBA player who's played for as many years as he has, the idea of actually playing in an empty arena is like unthinkable right it's like you know you're almost like your brain just shuts down when you even consider this idea i think that we've progressed to the point here over the last couple of days michael it's sort of like we've hit a tipping point i think the fear factor and the just the science is leading to the conclusion that it's very possible that restrictions in terms of who gets to go to nba games during the balance of this season and playoff run uh, is going to get restricted um And it's crazy for me to think about. I can't imagine uh, going to a game where there's only essential personnel. I also can't imagine being told that like, look, you're not allowed into the arena because uh, the media is gonna be on the outside looking in. But I think these are realistic possibilities at this point. You know, we need to look around the world. There's multiple soccer leagues in Asia that have either canceled games um, or played them in empty stadiums. Uh, the same thing is now happening in Italy, where there's like a big time quarantine effort. Uh, talking to league, league executives uh, over the weekend, they were striking a very serious and very somber tone to me. They're like, look, like we understand what LeBron's trying to say, but he is not a public health expert. This is a pandemic that's bigger than any one person. And I wrote about this for a story for the Washington Post, and and people should go check it out. I think there's some interesting details and and quotes in there. But, um, you know, the bleep hit the fan here over the last couple of days, Michael. You've got a state of emergency in California. You've got San Francisco, the city's public health department saying, look, there should be no mass gatherings, uh, you know, like the Warriors games. You've got teams across the country that are now basically like power washing every seat with sanitizer after games in hopes of limiting the the possible spread. You've got teams that are concerned about elderly members of their fan base being exposed and and being at higher risk if they were to come to games. Um, This conversation has just really picked up speed, you know, very quickly. And the NBA has, you know, put out a few memos already. There's more communication expected here in the next few days, it's a real deal, man. Like, and I just curious, I mean, when you're looking at it, um, where do you think this is headed? Like, if, you know, what's your gut tell you? I know it's a tricky question because neither one of us has really ever experienced anything like it. Um, But, you know, just as a personal anecdote, like I hopped on an airplane to to fly out to, uh, you know, Minnesota for a story on Saturday. And I think if I knew then what I know now in terms of some of the fear factor and some of the just the facts on the ground, I'm not totally sure I would have gotten on that plane. And by the way, when I got to LAX, there was like nobody there. It was basically a ghost town, unlike I've ever seen it. You know, on a at noon on a Saturday, there's fewer people than are there. Sometimes at 4 a.m., uh, you know what I mean. So uh, I guess I'm probably sounding a little concerned, Michael. Uh, what's your concern level at like this, and what do you expect to unfold here over the next, say? you know, a couple of weeks or months.
1: Yeah. I mean, your concern level, it feels completely rational based on everything I've heard. And just walking around New York City where I live, where there is also a state of emergency and there are, I believe, the most cases of uh, uh, people who have tested positive for the coronavirus in the country right now in New York State. Uh, So it's super scary. I mean, you get on the the subway here and it's like the first 15 minutes of a horror movie. Like it's no way if you cough, everybody is like getting up and going to the opposite side of the car. It's just it's really scary. So, I mean, I know that we're a basketball podcast and um, it it is a little scary strange to discuss a pandemic that's affecting 7 billion people or whatever it is, uh, in terms of, you know, how it will impact the NBA and its players and its games. But at the same time, like this is the life that you and I, and a lot of our listeners know so well, and we're so embedded in the NBA on a day-to-day basis. And so when something like the possibility of empty arenas arises, like it feels dystopian. It feels terrifying. Like the optics are just so scary to even think about. Um, I, I I personally like can't even imagine it. I can't visualize sitting in an arena as a media member, if I'm even allowed to, without any fans there, without like a PA system. With, I, I just, I, I can't even process it, to be honest. I have no idea what it will look like.
0: Well, I have, you know, some frame of reference because I used to go to Blazers games in 2005. And uh, <laughs> there was moments where I was the only guy in the section, Michael. Uh, you know, this was before my writing career, kind of after I graduated college. And uh, it was a dark times for Portland. Um, certainly never thought I would be going back to that, especially after relo- relocating to LA where, like, you know, the building's always full. I'm just going to read you a couple quotes from executives that I talked to this weekend, okay? Um, one of them said, Personally, I think there's a good chance we will be forced to play games in empty arenas at some point. The virus is spreading quickly. It's not contained, and it will not be contained anytime soon. The threat could carry on until next season. Um, Another one said, you know, we aren't exempt. He said he was personally concerned for himself and his kids, and he was scared for his parents because they were elderly. Uh, He says, we don't know where it's going, and it could get really, really bad. That's not being alarmist. That's just the truth. Um, And then another one said basically like, don't listen to LeBron, listen to the health experts. The NBA is trying to get information here as quickly as it possibly can. Um, And he basically said, look, this is the real deal. So people are sounding the alarms. Um, And I think when you compare the NBA to other professional leagues, like I do feel like Adam Silver's leadership is gonna wind up having the NBA being more proactive on this issue than the other major American uh, sports leagues. Um, we have seen other movement here recently, like there was a college basketball game division three, actually at Johns Hopkins university is where they played it, which is my alma mater, but they, you know, and it doesn't surprise me that, you know, the, the school of public health there is excellent. They're probably, you know, paranoid in, in every capacity. And they just said, look, you, you guys can't have anybody show up to this game. So they played a division three basketball game in an empty gym. Um, I do think we need to start, uh, you know, prepare to inch towards that reality um, you know, we're speaking here on Monday, Michael, it sounds like some of the things that are, are being discussed from the league office and the teams could be to kind of put barriers in between players and media members to start. So in other words, you know, we have a lot of scrums where like huge crowds of media uh, kind of come together in locker rooms f- to interview players, you know, cameras, print reporters, everybody just kind of bunches up together. I mean, that's obviously a germ death trap. That's something that even when it's not coronavirus, like I've definitely gotten sick in those environments before. All it takes is one person to be sick for everybody to be sick because you're just kind of like shoulder to shoulder bunched up. So it sounds like the NBA is, is kind of targeting that as a possible thing that they might want to eliminate. Uh, it's also sounding like potentially like post game interviews, the way that those are done uh, could be at least, you know, rethought. Uh, and reanalyzed. And, and none of these things are necessarily final as we're talking right now, but these are just some of the, the issues that are coming up. Um, and so that leads you to believe, well, look, I mean, that could mean closed locker rooms, um, which was a discussion over the weekend on Twitter, you know, a lot of back and forth about whether it would be a good idea to just basically turn everything into post game press conferences or into like a mixed zone, as opposed to everybody crowding into a, you know, a cramped locker room, Um uh, So, you know, I don't know if you have any feelings on this, you know, strongly one way or the other. I think, you know, obviously it would be better as media members if we had access to post-game press conferences as opposed to being shut out entirely. You know, of course, that would be a preferable outcome because at least you're getting something from a quote standpoint and an interaction standpoint. Um, But, uh, you know, do you feel strongly like if they told you tomorrow, Michael, that like you are no longer allowed in the Nets locker room or the Knicks locker room? How much would it change your job? How much would it anger you that they took that step? Uh, And, you know, where would you come down on this? Would you understand the science behind the the argument? Or would you look at that as, like, you know, worse than an inconvenience?
1: I I mean, look, health and safety are the utmost priority, obviously. I don't even think that needs to be said out loud. Um, But, like, nobody wants to hear this, I guess, who's not a, a sports journalist or covering the NBA. But... Like I'm already before the coronavirus and before any of this happened, like throughout this season, I was already a little paranoid um, and it would come up in conversations with me and other writers and media members about the increasing uh, restrictions on player access. And, you know, teams are not holding practices as often as they used to. They're skipping shoot around, which is kind of a big hindrance to our ability to communicate with players. We only have so much time before and after games. And those settings, as you know, Ben, are, you know, it's pretty tricky to get, uh, you know, have a real conversation with a player in certain contexts, depending on um, what team and, Uh, you know, just what situation they're going through. A lot of players will tell you that they don't want to talk pregame. And then after the game, if they lose by 30, they're in a bad mood and are giving one word answers. So it's just, it's, it's, it's really tricky. Um, And what I fear is that there would be a slippery slope here. And maybe that again, is just me being paranoid. But if you go to a mixed media zone type of thing, and you know the players love it and they love the experience of not having to communicate with the media before games and after games uh, in an open locker room setting that suddenly that just becomes the norm and that would just be really devastating to what we do for a living in my opinion because I mean there was like uh, I was at a Knicks uh, jazz game uh, a couple nights ago and I go in the locker room and I see a player who I know a little bit and I go up to him and I shake his hand and he's, he's laughing. He's like, I'm not supposed to be doing this. Meaning, you know, he looks down at our hands and we, we chat a little bit and I ask him some questions for a big feature that I'm, I'm working on right now. And he was great. And those, com- those instances of communication just are not possible um, or would not be possible in a mixed media uh, situation. So in and, and, and that type of environment where, um, you know, everyone's just kind of mashed together. So uh, I know that this is really, it sounds like I'm just kind of complaining about uh, something that is obviously incon- insignificant relative to the issue at hand. But that's just kind of what I'm thinking about in the back of my head after I'm, you know, crying myself to sleep over this coronavirus <laughs> spreading throughout the country and the world.
0: Well, first of all, don't cry, dry your eye, as Tupac would say. But (laughs) second of all, um, it doesn't sound like you're whining to me. It actually sounds like you're laying out why this would make you way harder to do your job, right? And I think anybody in any walk of life wants to feel like they're being set up for success. And if you're saying like, look, you have to cover the NBA, but you can't interact on a one-on-one basis with basically any player ever and during an entire playoff run everything is going to be post-game press conferences so that like all the media that descends on these playoff games is going to basically have the same access to a limited number of people most likely Uh, that doesn't serve the fans it doesn't serve the media it doesn't serve the league and the problem is there may be no alternative right and that's the the really tricky scary part um, I'm with you, though. Like, I tend to take a pretty hard line when it comes to the media access thing. You know, I actually went after Adam Silver a little bit last fall when they decided to close the media off during the, the Chinese exhibitions after the Hong Kong controversy. Because mm-hmm. my argument was like, look, you're trying to stand, up, say you stand up for American values, but if you're not letting the media in— uh, what more American value is there than access in, in the free press? You know what I mean? So if we're just mm-hmm. going to play by China's rules when you're in China, uh, why should we believe that we're going to be playing by normal rules or what we're accustomed to once you come back from China? It's absolutely a slippery slope. Uh, the NBA was not necessarily pleased with that column. Uh, I think they made it very clear to me like, look, this was a one-time thing. It was an extreme situation. It was a, you know a a case where if one player said the wrong thing, that you know, really serious damage could be done to the relationship between the NBA and China, which I all t- I completely understood. But still, like access is access, and it it, it needs to be there. Uh, and so, again, it's a very tricky ethical question here because if if there is not some method for the media to do its job, uh, the whole product suffers, and I think the NBA does get that. I do think that they're fairly pro media. At least in theory, and I agree with you that the restrictions are just coming more and more every year. It gets trickier, um, but in general, I think their heart is in the right place, um, and I do worry that this could, you know, be kind of a turning point where this forces, you know, things that have been in place for decades to change, and then will they change back? Right. That, that's kind of the big question, and and we can't know that before it plays out. Uh, it's just something that everybody should be, um, you know, uh, on watch for. And, you know, by the way, like when Michael and I do this podcast on a regular basis, like we're not podcasting from the locker room, but, you know, Michael's constantly referencing conversations or interactions with players in that type of environment. A lot of the little anecdotes and nuggets that I'm getting uh, that I use on this podcast, and a lot of times the ones that I lead with on this podcast are coming from attending games, talking to other people, and talking to players, right? Or at least being in the scrums uh, because there's such a big media contingent in LA where, you know, the, the one-on-one stuff is a little bit
1: harder to manage. So I'm not ben, saying- Ben, 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 can I jump in really quick with a yeah. specific example that I Please. think comes to mind? Um, well, yeah,
0: well, just to finish this off real quick. Sure. I'm not saying the podcast is going to suck now, guys, uh, but it <laughs> will It will change, right? Like, there's no doubt. I mean, part of what we try to bring with this this show is a certain degree of authority that's granted from the access, right? We're trying to take you behind the scenes every once in a while. And if we're not able to get behind the scenes- um, it's not the same show. So with that bleak uh, outlook, I turn it over to you.
1: <laughs> no, I mean, I just wanted to throw an example about, you know, what I'm talking about here. Uh, so, uh, and this will potentially lead into our next subject, but uh, I wrote a column today about the Nets and Kenny Atkinson, who they fired over the weekend. And in it, I, I write about uh, how last season... The Nets lost eight straight games, and there were players in that locker room who, if you talk to them during it, you know, they thought that change was coming at the head coach position. And those conversations are not going to be had in front of cameras. They're not going to be had in a mixed media zone. You're not going to learn what a veteran has to, what a veteran really thinks about the status of his head coach and the state of his team. Besides private conversations in the locker room, one-on-one, and those are relationships that you know they're they're hard enough to build as it is. It takes years to do, and it would be just about impossible in any other environment. So I had that anecdote uh, in there in my story, and something like that could not be possible uh, if I did not have that locker room access.
0: Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side. Your Sleep Number setting— It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen, now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Well, let's go ahead and shift gears to this Kenny Atkinson thing, because uh, I had never even heard his name before this weekend. I didn't even know. I'm just kidding. Um, I mean, look, all jokes aside, Kenny Atkinson gets fired in his fourth year as Brooklyn Nets head coach. Um, He never got the chance to coach Kevin Durant for a single game. He coached Kyrie Irving for 20 games. They are going to backdoor into the playoffs despite having a losing record We've talked in the past about how this was sort of a completely lost season for them where, uh, you know, not only did they not uh, even take a sideways step, but they actually took a step backwards. Uh, apparently, DeAndre Jordan's right to start was a major uh, issue for the organization, which frankly says it all for how irrelevant they are, if that's actually an issue that, th- that is a pressing concern mm-hmm. uh, at this point of his career. Um, but were you surprised... I'll be honest, I was not surprised at all. Uh, but uh, what did you make of uh, Brooklyn's decision to go a different direction with their head coach? They um, are tabbing, as an interim coach, Jock Vaughn, former Orlando Magic coach, and presumably they will have, uh, you know, a pretty thorough coaching search this summer and, and probably some big names. I think people have thrown out Ty Lu and Mark Jackson and a few others here in, in the first couple of days. But what did you make of the whole thing, Michael? I mean, you're there... Uh, you know, at these Nets games, did you sense it coming?
1: I did not sense it coming uh, when it happened. But as you said, it it's like, it's not a total shock for him to... To get fired or I I, you know if that were to happen over the summer that would seem very logical to me I wouldn't bat an eye the fact that it happened when it did coming off I mean there were some bad losses there was a blowout loss against the Atlanta Hawks after the All-Star break there was a blowout loss at home against the Memphis Grizzlies but just given the circumstances uh, of what Kenny had to deal with in terms of injuries and the roster that that The front office gave him to work with this season where, you know, his starting power forward had to be Torian Prince because Wilson Chandler was suspended 25 games for uh, for uh, breaking the league's drug policy. Um, You have DeAndre Jordan, who's whining about wanting to be in the starting lineup and expected to start even though Jared Allen was the incumbent starting center who is better at basketball than DeAndre Jordan is. Kevin Durant obviously is not going to play a second. Kyrie Irving had his issues last year in Boston that were you know, spread throughout the locker room and uh, on court to say the least of anything about his personality. It's really difficult to win it turns out with Kyrie Irving as your primary ball handler. And so I just think he had a lot of difficult hurdles to climb. And the fact that the Brooklyn Nets were not the Chicago Bulls or the Detroit Pistons is a testament to a lot of the positive qualities that Kenny brings to the table. So I I just think that the way it went down, how it went down, the timing was totally unfair. And, like, look, I never believed for a second that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving chose Brooklyn because of Kenny Atkinson, as Kevin Durant uh, explicitly stated during Media Day. Um, But it was... uh, I just I, I thought it was unfair. And uh, I, th- I would have really liked to see him get a chance to coach legitimate talent. And we still don't know the, uh, all, of the all that there is to know about this story. And hopefully Kenny speaks up uh, about it at some point. But I think Kenny will be fine. He will be a head coach again in this league. And as you alluded to, uh, it'll be very, very, very interesting to see who the Brooklyn Nets hire to replace him.
0: So I got a couple of takes here. Okay, first of all, uh, the Kevin Durant, you know, saying I want to play for Kenny. You know, I've watched his his coaching on YouTube. I've been studying the film. Total <laughs> Look, that's one of the greatest strategies of all time. Look, if you're a company and you're facing some obvious criticism or if you're a public figure and you're facing obvious criticism – just taking that criticism and completely flipping it 180 and trying to make it a strength is such a classic technique, which I I just have to like, just bald face. I have to respect it, like way to go. You know what I mean? Um, So that aside, we got a lot of emails, Michael, from people who were asking that I just crush Kyrie over this and blame Kyrie. And of course, you know, Kyrie's always a coach killer. He's never coached a guy longer than two seasons or everything else. I want to make this very clear. This was not a decision by the star players. This was a decision by ownership and by management and it wasn't made here during the regular season. This was inevitable as soon as they decided to scrap the Kenny Atkinson approach of hey, I'm like a college coach, you know, overachieving, you know, turning G-leaguers into roster guys and everything else and to turn all of that it on its head and to go chase the two superstars last summer. That's why I wasn't surprised that he was fired. As soon as they pursued Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and they got those guys, Kenny Atkinson was already a dead man walking. Look, and I've made jokes about, you know, Sean Marks wears Adidas, so therefore, you know, he's not really like a shot caller there in Brooklyn. And, you know, he's not taking his marching orders uh, or he's not the one giving marching orders to Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And like, I'm kind of joking about that, but I'm also not, right? Like this organization chose... Uh, to turn their franchise over to Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And when you do that, you're not going to have a coach who has built his reputation on player development as squeezing the the most possible lemonade out of lemons. That's not going to be your guy long-term. There's just no possible way. That's not the job that Kenny Atkinson was hired to do. Um, if you gave him truth serum, I really wonder what he would have said about, you know, do I want to be the guy to coach Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving? Was that the right approach last summer to give them both max contracts, given the injury histories and everything else? Or do you try to continue to build the way that they were previously? He would have his own takes on those things. And uh, so that's why I say, like, don't blame Kyrie on this one. You know, like, is his role and his presence a factor in this decision? Of course. But uh, you're going to need to bring in a coach who's going to, you know, cater to your superstar guys. Once you've committed to your superstars, it is fairly unfair. It's not the best. I got a lot of hate mail from, uh, you know, 50 uh, plus year old NBA fans who are saying, "What does the league come to where, you know, the coaches are so powerless?" And like, I understand that sentiment completely from fans. But facts are facts. It's just the way the NBA works. There's no connection between those stars and him. His style and his direction and his resume was not on par with what you expect for a coach who's going to face championship expectations. I'm sure he's a nice guy, and the Brooklyn media seems to kind of like eat out of his hand at times. Um, but this guilty, the, yeah, the writing <laughs> on the wall on this one dates back to the minute Kevin Durant announced his decision.
1: I, I I hear all that. Like I'm not super naive. I understand what his what his qualities were that. Were so attractive to Sean Marks when he first hired him, and where the franchise was then, and the direction that they 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 pivoted to over the summer. I just, I also think that you know, there's reports trickling out that he didn't want to coach KD and Kyrie, and I just think that those are ludicrous and frankly depressing. Like. That's sort of like turning down a winning lottery ticket because you don't want to pay the taxes that come with it. Like no one he's a head basketball coach. Why would he not want to coach one of the fifteen potentially one of the fifteen best players of all time? Like that it just it doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And I totally get what you're saying about how his MO was being in player development. There are definitely Uh, examples in recent NBA history of someone who came from the video room and ended up coaching some top tier talent, Eric Spolstra, Frank Vogel. So it's been, it it has happened before. I just, I I don't see why he could not have had the opportunity. And also, you know, if you are an exceptional player development coach, and you have sweat equity with your players, and a lot of the players in that locker room did like uh, Kenny Atkinson last year and this year, like your ability to build up uh, rotational players uh, who are on the margins, who do not make a lot of money, league minimum guys, that has significant value for a team that is paying the max to Kyrie Irving, who is not a max player in my opinion, or at least you do not get value on that max. Uh, and you're also paying DeAndre Jordan way more than he should be than he should be paid. And uh, Kevin Duran, obviously his max money. So you need to build up your talent around the fringes. I don't see why uh, why Kenny would deter that um, or not be able to help out in that area. So that's kind of where I come down because he's gonna it. be pushing
0: and, the superstars too hard. I mean that that sweat equity that you're talking about. It's like having a high balance or high available spending limit on your credit card. But going to a restaurant, that's cash only, right? That's not going to do you any good. Like, (laughs) You you need to go get a cash advance to figure out how to turn that sweat equity into some sort of respect from your superstar level guys. That's the problem, man. I I mean, this guy is just, he's a demanding personality um, and superstar guys just expect different stuff, man. I think uh, to me, it was always kind of like a rock and a hard place and, uh, you know, we'll see. Their their hire is going to tell a lot, right? It's gonna. Can to we tell talk you, about that for a second? Well, for sure, because I mean, Kevin Durant's making this
1: hire, right? I mean,
0: and Kevin Durant and his people uh, are—are they going to be in a
1: situation where they're the lead voices here? I think so for sure. Um, I think that it. I, I, I think that this hire could be like Gonzo crazy like i i think that we could see a, a humongous name and i threw out some names in my column today about it that i think are probably uh implausible but the nba you kind of never know so i'm going to throw two names at you uh, i i assuming you did not read my my column already i'm going to throw two names at you and you tell me how insane they sound okay Barack Obama <laughs> damn it um <laughs> um what no, you the got fir- michael the, okay the first one coach k that's pretty gonzo can't see it um
0: but lay out so obviously
1: obviously the relationship is that he recruited Kyrie to Duke uh Team USA connection with Kevin Durant he's respected by those guys uh if they need to get free agents I'm sure that people would want to play for Coach K he seems like a fine tactician basketball coach he's won national championships um and I also think that if money were the issue with any of these guys um that Joe Psy is going to pay top dollar because they kind of look so foolish right now. And I don't know if he understands that or not. But well, the this,
0: this same guy had like a seven page Facebook yeah. post <laughs> about the Hong Kong fiasco. Right. So, like, I'm not sure like looking foolish is really like. A no, consideration. I know. I know. I know. Okay, here's my question on Coach K. Like, does he really have a price or does he have all the white polo shirts and khaki pants that he needs? You know, I mean, is money motivating Coach K or, or what is the allure for him to come to the NBA?
1: Well, it's not like it, I don't want to say this is a no-lose situation, but you are walking into a really cool market. You get to live in New York, you get to live in Brooklyn. It's fun here, I promise. You get to coach Kevin Durant, assuming that he I I mean we don't know if he's 100% or how he will look when he gets back, but you know, all things considered in all the clips that we've seen that have circulated around the internet, he looks very, very, very good. And if he is 95% of what he was, then the opportunity to coach that is, you know, that's once in a lifetime. So I would say just if some, as someone who loves basketball, as someone who is looking forward to challenges, I don't know if he still is at this point in his career. Uh, I think that this would be a really intriguing opportunity. That's that's basically my pitch for Coach K.
0: I see this is a no-win environment, man. You've got expectations and not enough talent, um, and you've got an organization with very limited cachet and history of success. You've got major injury issues for your superstar-level players. I don't think this is a good job at all, Michael. No disrespect to your borough, Um, but this
1: looks no I mean I let me let me say like Saturday when we first heard the news one of the first things I tweeted out was I do not know how many respectable head coaches are going to be lining around the block for an opportunity to coach Kyrie Irving Kevin Durant and have championship expectations with a little chance of winning the championship so I, I agree with what you're saying Um, I do I really do even though I just made that pitch that made it sound like I don't but I do think that particularly how you know, after how Kenny was treated um, and what he did for the organization and just how awkwardly he was kind of shoved out the door um, that, you know, I I think coaches would look at that and be like, why would I why would I want to be in this situation? But then there is the tempting allure of the talent and KD and Kyrie. And, and they, you know, when, if KD is 100%, like you cannot rule that team out as a championship contender for sure.
0: All I'm saying is Brooklyn coach K is worse than wizards. MJ. That's all I've got. Um, wow. Wow. yeah, wow. Don't do it. Don't do it. Coach K you're a legend. Just, you know, stick to the court that's named after you. Don't try to come and change basketball in New York. It's just not worth it. All right, Benedict. who else you got?
1: Okay, so this is my hottest of all takes, and it's going to, like, singe your the he, the hairs coming out of your ears right now. Um, He was in Brooklyn the other night, and the next day Kenny Atkinson is fired. I, I'm just putting two and two together here. Uh, Mr. Greg Popovich.
0: Michael, um, we had an email come in (laughs) and and the listener, I forget his name, but he accused you of using illicit drugs when it came to your Steph Curry uh, opinion. (laughs) I I don't know if I want to say exactly which drugs, because this is obviously a drug-free school zone on this podcast. Um, But now I'm curious, man, like what is happening with you right now? Are you okay? Are you good? Is this coronavirus fear getting to your mind a little bit? Like, this is some coach coach K and Popovich are going to coach the Nets. Okay. Are we we sure the Nets are even going to be a top five job this summer? You don't think they will be a top five job? No. I mean, like I, I've been so out on the Nets for more than, uh, you know, basically a year now. I mean, really for the whole decade, frankly, but I think that there is a lot of real challenges there. And, Um, I could understand why a guy like Ty Lue, who's got an established relationship with Kyrie Irving, understands the deal of of dealing with him, uh, has spent a lot of time around superstar-level players, has won under massive scrutiny before. Like, I could talk myself into a Ty Lue. I could even see why, you know, somehow Mark Jackson would get back into the NBA coaching game because of, you know, friendships and relationships with Kevin Durant's camp. Um, But if you're saying, like, Hall of Fame level coaches, are they going to trust their reputations to these guys? I would say they just absolutely should not. You know, like why would you do that? It just seems like a okay, lot of okay. Let me there. let
1: me make, let me make the case for Pop. Obviously, his legacy is cemented. There's no debating that, uh, and well, he may. But Michael, that's what they
0: said about Phil Jackson before he was Nick's president. And now he's been a hiding okay. in Montana for five years. <laughs> I don't want Popovich to disappear on some lake and we never get to see him again.
1: Okay. So if, I mean, if you're Pop, like this could be, this could be it in, in San Antonio this season. He might walk away after this. We don't know, um, particularly if there are no Olympics this summer. Um, but, you know, that, that team is... Pretty much going nowhere. They're not going to be a contender this year. They are not contender next year. Um, so if he wants to, uh, you know, prove that he can win one without Tim Duncan, uh, come to Brooklyn. He loves New York, loves the city, loves the culture, gets paid a bajillion dollars by Josiah. Josiah comes in the room just with bags of money. He already has a personal relationship with Sean Marks and members of the front office. I, I i just think it's possible they give me a one percent chance let's go
0: okay i'll give you a one percent chance on this one but uh <laughs> you, you know you you do you have any serious candidates here can we get one that has like a 35 percent chance or you don't want to do those
1: okay so i have i have real candidates who i think would be really fascinating um two guys who i think will lose their jobs uh uh after the playoffs Uh, Brett Brown.
0: Okay, okay. Now we got one, Michael. I was hoping you would say Brett Brown. That actually makes some sense.
1: Yeah, so Brett Brown, I mean, I think a lot of people are not impressed with uh, his, his tactical abilities as a head coach, and I would say that his roster has been awful in terms of uh positional overlap and skill set overlap for the entirety of the time that the Philadelphia 76ers have been relevant and also that organization and that front office has just been a total dumpster fire for his entire tenure. A lot of turnover, a lot of dysfunction. Uh, you know, you have the analytics staff basically dictating your rotation. That must be just not an enjoyable environment for him to be a head coach. Um I think he would be really interesting. Players seem to like him, except for the ones that he's coaching right now. Um, And uh, yeah, so I I think Brett Brown would be a really, uh, he would be a really intriguing choice there.
0: And who's the other guy who's getting fired?
1: Uh, the other one, even though I think that this team will win the championship, is Mike D'Antoni, who's, I, I think even if they do win the title, <laughs> they still fire him, just because of every all the tea leaves that we've been able to read for the past uh, 12 months, I guess. Um, what Mike a key D'Antoni- check that would be My- from Tillman Fertitta, to win the
0: title and then fire <laughs> D'Antoni.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could see it happening. Just, I mean, what's his book titled, Shut Up and Listen?, um, Shut up and s- win me a title and go away. <laughs> 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 the new bestseller from Tillman Fertitta. Yeah, D'Antoni would just be great, and I'm being selfish because he's one of my favorite coaches to talk to, so uh, having him around in Brooklyn would be terrific. He could spite the New York Knicks, a, a team he coached, and uh, it was absolutely a uh, nightmarish run for him there. Um, they booted him out the door. Uh, I think that... D'Antoni just—he's still ingenious in a lot of ways. He looks at basketball, and he obviously has been able to coexist with prickly personalities at the superstar level in James Harden and Russell Westbrook, um, and Chris Paul. So no,
0: I think that's your your best argument here is that Kyrie under a D'Antoni system, and like given the type of freedom that D'Antoni affords his stars would be kind of the only way that Kyrie can really be coached effectively, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Like you kind of have to just submit to the Kyrie existence, hope he can stay healthy and just let him dribble as much as he wants and push the tempo and go one-on-one. And then also D'Antoni, of course, would try to space the court around Kyrie as much as possible. And if you give a one-on-one player like that, you know, a five-out system, now he can really do some damage. Um, I'm not sure what (laughs) D'Antoni's arrival would mean for you know, precious DeAndre Jordan in his minutes. Um, But, you know, certainly that would be the best way to get something out of Kyrie. My big question, though, would be with Kevin Durant. Do you want him playing fast when he comes back off his Achilles? Is he going to want to play fast? Is he going to want to be more of a half-court post-up, you know, mid-post type of player? Um, or, or pick and pop type of guy. Um, you know once he's back from his health, that could be the only hangup here I, I see on this. Well
1: idea. well, I mean, D'Antoni, if you, you I mean you remember that when Chris Paul was there, they were one of the slowest teams in the league. So he plays to his star strengths. He's a, a really smart guy. I am, I would be fascinated honestly to see uh, to see Kevin Durant in a system where he's just allowed to cook and to isolate, like, every possession without someone like Russell Westbrook taking 25 shots a night. Like, I know Kyrie is going to be Kyrie, but in this system where basically you're plugging, you're replacing Harden with KD, and you get some shooters around them, you know, you re-sign Joe Harris and whoever else you're able to keep, uh, like, Kevin Durant's numbers in, in in that scenario, in that system, would just be out of this world.
0: Yeah, I guess my point with the style thing was, does D'Antoni bring out the contrast in Kyrie and and Durant's style? Um, Like, because I guess I'm just envisioning like the idealized version of Kyrie that I always have in my mind is the USA Basketball practice where he was like slaloming through all those Hall of Famers with like between-the-leg dribbles and three-sixties in the open court and everything else. And, you know, you pushing the tempo, and maybe he's not that guy either. Maybe he's better as a one-on-one half-court player, and Kevin's obviously an incredible one-on-one half-court player, and so maybe you're not playing super-duper fast. Um, I guess I was just wondering, like, does that force a wedge between those two guys if you turn over uh, the team to a coach like D'Antoni? I'm not rendering it, uh, you know, a definitive answer one way or the other. I'm just... Uh, You know, I hate this pairing between these two guys as it is. And the more that I think about it, it's like, what a thankless job for any coach.
1: No, I I totally agree with you.
0: Yeah, personally, maybe it would be best to just leave that job unfilled. Hey, real quick, Michael, we got a a postscript on our earlier conversation about the coronavirus. ESPN is reporting that some of the things I was alluding to earlier uh, will be happening uh, or will likely be happening here shortly in terms of uh, media being taken out of the locker room. And also there's going to be kind of a buffer between players and media members when there's an, you know, the interview availabilities outside of the locker room. So listeners, we did not steer you wrong. We were not speculating. Uh, This story is getting firmed up by the hour. And now, you know, thanks to this incredible live update from me. Michael, any thoughts? Are you more outraged than you were even half an hour ago?
1: I'm not, (laughs) I'm not outraged. I'm just... I I really just hope this is not a slippery slope and I'll leave it at that. Well, look, this has
0: been a very depressing episode, Uh, you know, at least the second half of it. Uh, So bon voyage to Kenny Atkinson. Uh, Sayonara (laughs) to all of our locker room media access, but we're going to end it on a high note. And we got a bunch of great emails to openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And we're going to double back with all those emails later in the week. So have no fear. If you know you sent us a heater, it's gonna be on the next episode. But this one came in from Gabriel, and I can't skip this, Michael, because we might have a new theme song uh, for our show. He writes, Hi Ben and Michael. Yesterday I was sitting in a church meeting. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, like your language watchdog, Elizabeth. And for longtime listeners or people who don't know, Elizabeth is a wonderful teenage girl who happens to be Mormon, who was always lecturing us about not using profanity so that she could listen to the show uh, with her family members and get their approval. Gabriel continues, Halfway through our church meeting, the congregation stood to sing a hymn. The hymn is called, Let Zion in Her Beauty Rise, And I couldn't help but think of Zion Williamson beginning his rookie season and fulfilling prophecy as he progresses through this year and beyond. Below are the lyrics to the hymn with some minor edits for clarity. I hope you find as much joy and meaning in these beautiful words as I did while singing along with hundreds of other faithful saints. And then he signs it, best a saint in Zion. Oh beautiful. I'm surprised I've never signed an email, a saint in Zion, but that will probably be changing here going forward. Now, Michael, I understand that you have extensive choir experience and you're going to lead us (laughs) in in the singing of uh, Zion in his beauty
1: rise. Are you ready? Uh, yeah, sorry, my my I, my phone is, there's another beep coming in. I, I think we have to cut this one short, unfortunately. All right,
0: here, can I just read it? I'm, I can't sing, Michael, I'm not gonna lie. And first of all, I'm gonna read this beautiful hymn because Gabriel was so thoughtful to send it in. And I really do think this should become our theme music. And I wanna challenge all the creative minds in the open floor globe out there. If you're a singer, if you're in a choir, if you're a musician, I want you to look up this hymn And I want you to send me an MP3 of you or your group performing this. We've never done anything like this on the show before. It could fail miserably, spectacularly, Michael. But this is an Open Floor Globe challenge. Let me hear your Zion hymns. Please email them to me. Openfloormail at gmail.com. Okay. The hymn goes, Let Zion in his beauty rise, his light begins to shine. Ere long the king will rend the skies, majestic and divine. The gospel spreading through the land a people to prepare to meet the Lord and Enoch's band triumphant in the air. Ye heralds sound the gold... <laughs> I can't believe I'm doing this. Ye heralds sound the golden trump to earth's remotest bound. Go spread the news from pole to pole in all the nations round. That Zion in the clouds above with hosts of angels to will soon appear, his saints to save, his enemies subdue. It kind of seems like it's about Zion Williamson, Michael, when you really break down the lyrics in terms of, um, you know, enemies being subdued, Zion's in the clouds above, the king is rending the skies, his beauty is rising. Like, all these lines, is Zion himself a prophecy? That's the question.
1: No, this is fire like i read it to myself i did not say it out loud when you passed it along to me but just hearing it it's like i want the uh, the nas ether beat behind it so whoever sings it <laughs> along to us please have that in there it would be incredible
0: i can't think of something less elizabeth appropriate than the Nas ether beat, but I, I appreciate your contribution. Uh, Michael, I had the the pleasure of watching Zion play again um, on Sunday in Minnesota against the Timberwolves. Three absolutely spectacular dunks, and then one hard fall that actually felt like an earthquake in the entire gym because he landed hard. Uh, he got up, he was okay afterwards, but he just continues to deliver bountiful joy. I think I'm actually one of the heralds sounding the golden trump which i believe is actually this podcast um to earth's remotest bound in other words we're spreading the gospel of zion coast to coast and beyond here uh, on open floor and this is what we're all about so again guys send in your musical renditions of this song and blow everyone away i know we've got some talented listeners out there especially in australia we hear from some musicians down there all the time so guys don't let me down here on that note michael we've reached the end of another Open Floor episode. Guys, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. Michael's on Instagram and Twitter at Michael V as in Victor Pina. And guys, it's P-I-N-A, not P-E-N-A. All of Michael's haters, for some reason, get that wrong. So just so you know where to direct your hate mail and, and other angry tweets, Michael, Vias and Victor, Pina, P-I-N-A. I'm on Instagram, at Ben.golliver. I'm on Twitter, at Ben.Goliver. Guys, email us, openfloormail at gmail.com. Hey, Michael, until later this week when we're digging through the rest of an incredible mailbag, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.